and welcome to Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. I'm Rita Peters, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, who's coming to me from a different studio. It's Mark Meckler. Mark, how are you? You're on the road today, right? I am on the road. You're in your normal library studio, which is usually where I am at home. Uh, I'm in the studio in Nashville on the set of a, a pilot for a television show we're making called Mr. America. Uh, and if you hear a little bit of background noise, it's raining really hard here in Nashville. And that's the rain you hear on the roof of the studio. Well, I'm just grateful that you made time in your schedule to be with us today to record Crossroads. We had Mike Ferris last week, and he's always great, but it's good to have you back, Mark. It's good to be here, and I'm enjoying the book, so let's get into it. All right. Well, for those of you who are joining us for the first time today in this series, we're currently doing a series of episodes on the topic of social justice. We're basing it off a great new book that I encourage you to pick up. You can get it on Amazon. It's called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. The book is written by Thaddeus J. Williams. Mark, today we're covering part three of the book, which discusses the question of whether injustice is the result of sinners or systems. And I'll give a spoiler here. The answer is both. (laughs) But I thought this part of the book was particularly well done. What did you think, Mark? Yeah, you know, when we've talked before, there's some parts of the book that I've struggled with. Uh, I felt like they were making simple things more complex. I think this was taking something very complex and making it much more simple. So I appreciated the way he walked through this, walked through all the statistics and showed us how things that people can make into injustice really aren't. They're just differences. Yeah, same here. Yeah, I think the overriding point is there's a ton of inequality in the world And different people, based on their worldview, have different ways of making sense of that. Some people swing way to the side of individual responsibility. And he gave an example in the opening of this part of Hindus who believe that their circumstances in life are a direct result of karma and how well they did in their past life on earth. But the trend in our culture today is the opposite of thinking that we are where we are because of personal responsibility, right? Yep. (laughs) Yeah, look, and that karma example actually really hit home for me, Rita. Uh, Many, many years ago, decades ago, I spent uh, about a month in India, and I was traveling around with a guide, and I was very enamored by the concept of karma. Like, because we think in the West of karma is what goes around comes around, right? Like, and but we think of it in our own lifetime. You do a bad thing, you get bad stuff in return. Mm-hmm. What he explained to me was, well, karma is a system that allows people not to care about other people. Because you can look at the poor person suffering on the street, the homeless person, and think, well, they must have been really bad in their previous life. Yeah. So, so he didn't really like the idea of karma in this sort of cyclical reincarnation sense. And what it does is actually removes the responsibility from the individual for their own actions or, or their own circumstances in this life completely. And I agree with that. I mean, that's ridiculous. On the other side, there are always circumstances in people's lives. So it's not 100 uh, percent individual responsibility or the other way. 
absolutely. And I would have to say for me personally, I tend more toward that side of thinking that where people are is a result of, you know, their personal choices, the responsibility they've taken or not taken. But and, and I can tend too far in that direction. But I think the overall trend in our culture today is toward the other side, which is injustice is everywhere and people who aren't doing so well, it's because they're a victim of injustice. Is yeah. So it's that- a culture, a counter culture of personal responsibility. It's a culture that says, if you're not achieving what somebody else is achieving, there's some form of injustice or discrimination or wrong that has to be righted. And there's literally no sense of personal responsibility. That's the way our culture is going right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Williams points out in the book that the Bible has a category for systemic injustice. I thought that this was really interesting. He quotes from Psalm 9420, which says, can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute. And Mark, I think that is a great description of what systemic injustice actually is. It's when injustice is framed or enshrined by a law, a statute, an official policy. And we do see that. We have certainly seen that in the past. But Mark, how much systemic injustice do you think there is today in America or in the world? Yeah, I would say not much in the USA. Uh, you know, I think the USA absolutely participated in systemic uh, injustice. And another word for injustice, by the way, he describes it as it's just sin, right? When we take things that are sinful, like murder, and I would argue in the United States, we have some of this where murder is ensconced in the law in the form of abortion laws that allow abortion. That's murder. And that's a system of murder. So that's systemic injustice. Most of the injustice in this country, I'd argue, the discrimination, uh, we had slavery, obviously, that was systemic injustice. We had Jim Crow laws. We had redlining on mortgages. All of this stuff was systemic injustice. And they were all sins also. And so, but we had ensconced them in law. I think in the United States, mostly, not only we do not have systemic injustice, mostly, mostly those things are now against the law. So I think we've done a pretty good job. But around the world, I would say there's still tons of systemic injustice. There is incredible racial discrimination encoded into societies. You have the untouchables in India still. The caste system has been ruled to be illegal, but it's still widely socially enforced in India. That is systemic injustice. There's slavery pretty much all over Africa. People don't know about this. People don't talk about it. There's black on black slavery all over Africa. There's slavery still in the Middle East even in places where it's illegal. So there's a lot of systemic injustice around the world right now. Yeah, I I would totally agree with that assessment. Now, according to Williams, the reason social justice B folks, as he calls them, believe there is so much systemic injustice in America today is really based on one key logical fallacy. They equate disparity with discrimination, or in other words, they equate differences in people's, you know, circumstances with disparity. And I really think he hits the nail on the head here. Yeah, you know, this is really an interesting thing. And and you and I as lawyers know this in a legal context by a particular term, which is disparate impact. Yes. 
So courts have, and this is going away now, but courts have said in the past, well, look, if you show that Hispanics do less well than whites in a particular area, that's a disparate impact, and that shows discrimination. And that's the idea that they're saying. So in other words, uh, and I'm going to do one of the more radical ones that we know out there. Men are some, he gives the stat, I don't remember what it was, but, you know, as far as in the Mason trades, brickling and the like, men are like 95% of Masons versus 5% are, are women. And that's disparate impact. You look at that. And so people who believe in this disparate impact or disparity theory would say, well, that's discrimination. Clearly, women are being discriminated against. They're not allowed to be Masons. The reality is most women don't want to haul stone around for a living. <laughs> And mostly it's guys that want to do it. By the way, we've got Masons in my family. It's really rough work. I don't, I don't recommend it as a guy or a woman. It's super <laughs> hard, dirty, brutal work. Hey, we're going to come back to this topic a little bit later, Mark, because this is a big pet peeve of mine. I want to talk more about it. But first, let's lay out the formula that Williams attributes to social justice B, which he says is really the reason, you know, they go so far off base with this. So step one, you spot an unequal outcome. Step two, you interpret that unequal outcome as evidence of a racist or sexist system. Step three, you overthrow the system. And step four, for Christians, you frame the need to overthrow the system as a gospel issue. In other words, if you're not doing that, you're not being a good Christian. You're not doing what God calls you to do. So, Mark, how would you describe the problem with that framework? I mean, well, first of all, we've got this disparity versus difference aspect of it, right? So there are all kinds of differences or quote unquote disparities that are not caused by any kind of discrimination, like the one we mentioned about Masons. Uh, we know, for example, that uh, women are more likely to end up in the healthcare professions than men. Women are more likely to be teachers than men. That's not because of sexism. That's because different choices that people make. So I think that's one of the fundamental flaws is people are individuals and they make different choices, sometimes based on biological reality. Men are stronger, generally speaking. And so being a Mason makes more sense for a guy who's going to haul stones around. Um, women are more predisposed, genetically speaking, to be caring and they're more likely to be in childcare and teaching and things like that. These are just individual differences. And so that disparity is not caused by any form of discrimination. And then we're going to go tear down a system that is functioning. Like, what are we going to do? Let's, let's use the Mason example. I love that one. So now what I'm going to do is, Rita, you're going to tell me that you want to be a lawyer and I'm going to say, no, you have to be a Mason. Right. Because right? we need more women to be Masons. You're like, I don't want to haul around bags of cement. Too bad. <laughs> we have to tear down the system. So we need at least 50 percent of people of, of Masons to be women. And then the worst part of the whole thing is when Christians lay their try to lay theology over this, that's not righteous. That's self-righteous. Mm. And so they become self-righteous and they try to cloak their uh, now what I would call racial theology or disparity theology in Christianity. And that's really sinful. Yeah, totally. Now, Williams goes into some depth in this part of the book with a couple of examples, and we're going to talk about them on the program because I think it's really helpful because these are real world examples, and it kind of shows you how this whole thing plays out. So the first example is the New Jersey Turnpike. 
data showed that more black drivers than white drivers were pulled over and issued speeding tickets. This organization called the Public Services Research Institute did a study to find out why. And in their final report, they used high-speed cameras and a radar gun and determined that while Black drivers made up 16% of the drivers on the turnpike, they made up 25% of the speeders in the 65 miles per hour zones. But they also pointed out that in that area, the population of Black drivers was much younger than the population of white drivers. And surprise, surprise, younger drivers, Mark, are more likely to speed. So I thought that was really just enlightening. How does this example help us when we hear statistics about inequalities and the people around us just right away conclude, well, systemic injustice is the culprit here. This is about racist police officers pulling over black drivers and not white drivers. How does this example help us think through that? What it should do is help us to be very cautious in jumping to conclusions of discrimination or racism. We should always look and understand that people can manipulate statistics to say anything. And that as you dig in, statistics have layers to them. So I think it's really interesting that the first thing they found out is that the black people on the turnpike were driving faster. So you could stop there and you could jump to the conclusion, well, sorry, black people speed more than white people, so they're getting more tickets, right? But yeah. then they jumped into one layer below that and said, well, the black population is much younger. And you laugh when you said it because we all know, especially if you have teenagers, you've been around young people, yes. you, you were a young person. Yes. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> knows that young people drive faster. Insurance rates are higher for young people. It's not yep. about skin color. So I think the important thing to note is uh, – you know, a Shrek said ogres have, or the donkey said in Shrek, ogres have layers like onions. <laughs> Statistics have layers like onions, right? You peel them back. What we see on the surface is generally not the whole story. And sometimes you have to go multiple layers deep. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like um, the saying that when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah. When you're on this social justice bee quest, you tend to just spot like every problem you see, you're very quick to just label it. It's a systemic injustice, but most of the time it's not. So no, and really, really important, Rita, that's actually uh, a an intentional facet, I would say, part of the theology or the liturgy hmm. of the social justice left. Uh, and the author here quotes Ibrahim X. Kendi is one of the leaders of this uh, critical race theory movement. And he basically says where I see disparity, not basically, these are his words in the New York Times, where I see disparity, I see racism. Yes. End of story. And that's so not nuanced. You know, I would, I, I'm a simple guy, so I'm going to say it simply. That's stupid. It's just <laughs> stupid to say that, right? What you yeah. could always say is where I see disparity, there's something interesting going on. I might want to look into that. Right. 
Yeah. So let's look at one more example. And this is a hot button one. It's the example of police shootings. I almost didn't talk about it in the program today, but I think we really need to um, because it is so talked about in our culture today. A lot of Americans have been outraged over the past several years when we hear about people being shot by police under questionable circumstances. When the victims have been black and the policemen have been white, we immediately hear charges of systemic racism. Now, Mark and I want to be clear. Every one of those victims was an image bearer of God. And those situations are tragic. But if we really care about justice, it's important that we understand the facts before we jump to those charges of racism or systemic racism. And here are some of those facts that Williams puts forth in this part of the book. Of the victims between 2016 and 2019, about half of them were white. These are the victims. And a quarter of them were black. Only about 4% of these instances involved the shooting of an unarmed victim. And then of the 24 unarmed victims per year who were not fleeing the scene, nearly all of them were physically attacking police officers, usually under the influence of drugs or alcohol. And I know, Mark, your mom is a retired law enforcement officer, so I'm sure you have particular thoughts and feelings about this, but how does this data square with the narrative that we've all been fed and why is that important? It doesn't match the narrative at all. If you listen to the narrative and studies have been done, and by, for this episode, by the way, I went outside the book and did a bunch of research. I, I just, this is a subject that fascinates me and really bothers me. From what you hear in the public narrative, you would believe there is a radical epidemic and you hear news commentators on the left saying this, that essentially young black men are being hunted by white police officers. Yes. I mean, I've, I've literally heard that phrase being used. And what you see, uh, the reality is nothing like that. There are very few of these shootings uh, and the vast majority of them involve some kind of violent altercation between the ultimate deceased and, and the police. And it's just not a big problem in America, numerically speaking. Now, everyone is a potential tragedy. There absolutely is abuse of police authority that takes place in the United States of America. As somebody that grew up in a law enforcement family, it's not no secret to me that there were bad cops out there. But the reality is more white people or unarmed white people are shot by cops than, than unarmed black people. By percentage of population, it's higher among blacks. But the numbers are really low. We don't have an epidemic of this. And again, what this leads to, Rita, is let's tear down the system, right? Let's defund the police. And the people who are most punished by defund the police are not middle to upper class white people because they live in more safe communities. The upper class folks, they get their own private security if they're nervous, right? And they live in guarded buildings or gated communities. The defund the police that comes out of this, out of the outrage machine, it punishes inner city communities of color more than anywhere else. So, mm -hmm. again, we, we go through those three things. You find uh, some disparity. And ultimately, what you do is you lead to blowing up the system. And for folks in Christian folks who are doing it, what they're doing is now they're imposing evil upon the communities that they say they're helping. They're acting in a very sinful way. 
Yeah. So that's one of the reasons it's so important for us to get this right, right? Because when we just move to let's get rid of the police, let's defund them, we're actually harming people who we say we're trying to help by overthrowing the system. And just I just want to be perfectly clear, we're not saying that these instances, you know, the data just explains them away. And so no. we just don't need to worry about it. What we're saying is that there sometimes is racism involved. Sometimes it's a matter of individual sin of racism. We should never just jump to the conclusion, though, that there's racism involved at all. And even if there is racism involved, we can't automatically conclude that it's systemic racism. It might just be, well, not just as in it's not important, but it might be individual racism, which yeah. is sin, but has to be dealt with in a different way. I, and I want to bring up one specific case because it caused our country to burn for months on end. And that was the George Floyd case. And in, in the George Floyd case, it was all about racism. Everybody talked about racism. And this was a, you know, a poor black guy that, that was killed by a white cop. And it was all about racism. What people forget is there was a full-blown trial on that. And not only was he not convicted of any form of hate crime, there was not a single piece of evidence, not one line in an entire months-long trial of evidence introduced of racism. Yeah. He was not alleged to be a racist. He had never said anything racist. He had never done anything racist. He had never been disciplined for being a racist. But we had riots in this country that did billions of dollars worth of damage. Uh, I think a couple dozen people were killed ultimately, all because of this narrative of racism. So there was a single incident that we then said was disparate treatment, right? Uh, this guy was yeah. treated badly because he was black. It caused lots of parts of the country to burn to the ground. And, and to take it all the way to its conclusion, it caused parts of the country to burn to the ground that got punished for this alleged sin that didn't even exist. And there were parts of the country that could least afford this kind of damage. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I want to point out one other reason it's so important for us to get this right and to not be hasty and jumping to conclusions. And that is, think of the police officer's like this one that you just talked about. We are slandering those people when we start alleging racism, details of what happened, but we don't really know why. We don't really know what was going on. We as Christians in particular need to be very careful that we're not engaging in that kind of slander. So wrapping up this this point, it's it's unwise to simply assume that systemic injustice or discrimination is the cause of inequalities in society. And Mark Williams lists three what he calls boring explanations <laughs> for many of the inequalities that we see today. And I thought this was really interesting. So first location, by that just your geography, where you live, two candles your age, how old you are. We saw that with the New Jersey Turnpike 
example, and three, calendars, meaning your birth month. And that one sounds kind of weird, but he talks about how, um, I guess, some sort of hockey league cuts off admission to their program at a certain date. So depending on when you were born, you have a better chance of being picked to be in this hockey league. But he goes on later to talk about what I think is the biggest you know, innocent or boring explanation for differences in society. And it's simply personal choices or preferences. And my favorite example of this is actually the one that you already brought up, Mark. It drives me crazy when I hear people moan about the statistics that show that fewer women are engineers than men or firefighters or Brit Masons or fewer Black Americans than white Americans are becoming doctors. And the tendency in society is to just immediately jump to systemic injustice. And I always think to myself, but what if those people just don't want to do that? <laughs> I don't want to lay bricks. It's yeah. too hard. <laughs> so am I crazy? Isn't it silly to think that every racial or gender group should make up exactly the same proportion of every profession as they do of the population as a whole? Why would anyone think that? Yeah, look, it's it's again being simplistic. That's just stupid. It's unbelievable <laughs> that people think that. And there's all kinds of uh, outrageous examples you could play out here. For example, uh, the NBA, extreme majority of NBA players are black. Does that mean that I was discriminated against because I'm not an NBA player? Well, no, the truth is I'm too short. <laughs> and, I, and I couldn't have played basketball. I'm a terrible athlete anyway, but I couldn't have even if I wanted to. It has nothing to do with skin color. There's all kinds of reasons that people make individual choices. You made choices through your whole life that allowed you to become a lawyer, ultimately a mom. These are just choices that you made. A lot of what we do in our lives is result in they're just choices that result in consequences good and bad in our lifetimes and this is very biblical right if we are told if we work if we toil then we'll reap the harvest and if we don't then we won't and so these are individual personal choices now not everything people have circumstances there are people in the world it would be a lot harder for them to become a lawyer than it was for you and me they come from more difficult circumstances family financial uh, where they go to school all that stuff but ultimately, a lot of people in those circumstances become lawyers as well. They make the choices. Right. And I love how Williams um, states this. He says, and I'm quoting, in a world unlike ours with zero racism or sexism or any other evil ism, there would still be vast inequalities based on things as boring and undamning as geography, age, birthdays, birth order, shopping habits, desire to lay bricks, and so much more, end quote. So Mark, Williams points out that when we commit ourselves to a vision of justice in which unequal outcomes are automatically assumed to be the result of injustice, the quest for justice will lead to the use of power to enforce sameness. So I want to hear your thoughts on that. He says different outcomes are the price of freedom. Yeah. So what he's pointing at is actually what's going on in the world today, which is the march towards totalitarianism. 
the only way to get equal outcomes for everybody, that's the definition of equity, is they want equal outcome, not equal opportunity. And the mm -hmm. only way to get there is to force that on people. Because what you're saying is, well, people can't be allowed to make their own choices because we know that choices lead to different outcomes. So we're going to force everybody to do the exact same thing in the exact same way at the exact same time. By the way, what I'm describing is impossible, which is why totalitarianism never works and always fails. But what you're talking about is Marxist ideology. And really, in this book, when we're talking about social justice B, their system of looking at injustice and social justice, what we're talking about is a form of Marxism. And so mm -hmm. ultimately, Marxism says that everybody should be equal, essentially, in outcome. It doesn't work. And by the way, it's led to the deaths of over 150 million people worldwide in its attempts at imposing this equality. Yeah. And I, I want to come back to this. We've already mentioned it earlier, but it's important. The reason this matters so much is that there is real injustice in the world. There are unjust policies and unjust systems. There is also a lot of sin in the hearts of people that result in injustices. But if we're spending our time trying to overthrow systems that are not actually unjust, then we're wasting time and energy that could be spent on doing battle against the real culprits. And then, Mark, we're almost out of time, but I want to get your comment on this. It occurs to me, and Williams mentions in the book, the social justice be trope that, you know, it's almost impossible for you to succeed if you're poor or if you're a racial minority. Isn't that just hopeless and uninspiring? How is that helpful to anyone? It's not. It creates victims. Victims cannot succeed. They always see themselves as victims and oppressed. That means they're always going to need a hand up. And by the way, most of the people that are trying to impose this on society, uh, I hate to use racial stereotypes here, but most of them are wealthy, white, educated women. It's yes. women and men, but the majority are women. And so they're looking, I see it as looking down on these people. Oh, poor you. You're, you can't make it. You're too oppressed. You're too much of a victim you need me to come in and save you so that you can make it. And it's really, it shows an absolute disdain for image bearers, in my opinion. Yes. Everybody, as you described early on, made in the image of God. And it shows a disdain for that and a superiority complex on their part. I believe anybody, by the way, we're not allowed to say this anymore, but I believe anybody can lift themselves up by their bootstraps. Hmm. And we know lots of stories of people who have, people of color, women, people who are oppressed minorities, Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court comes to mind, Thomas Sowell, renowned economist. These are people who lifted themselves up out of poverty, out of racial stereotypes, out of racism, and achieved the highest levels in our American system possible. Oprah Winfrey, one of the richest people in the United States of America, comes to mind. So telling these people that they're victims, it's just a horrible thing to do to a human being. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important for us to get this right and to carry with us the biblical truth about justice, which is a positive and hopeful message. And Mark, we are out of time, but <clears throat> toward the end of this part of the book, Williams quotes Proverbs 18, 15 through 17. I just want to quote it here as we wrap up. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. The one who states his case first seems right, 
until the other comes and examines him. So let that be a reminder to us. We need to be carefully examining these situations and not jumping to conclusions about systemic injustice. Mark, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And I want to end by thanking our generous sponsors at Blue Ridge Chimney Services, Blessings Christian Bookstore, Sunshine Ministries with Christian Radio, Wishing Well Flores and Travel Services, and our friends at New Beginnings Church and Garber's Church of the Brethren in Harrisonburg. Thanks everyone for listening. If you would like to make a donation, you can do so by check to Crossroads at P.O. Box 881, Harrisonburg, Virginia, 22803. I'm Rita Peters with Mark Meckler inviting you to join us again next week for Crossroads, where faith and culture meet. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads podcast. To learn more about Convention of States, go to conventionofstates.com. 